Hi everybody, this is Eric Mercier from Juice Imports. Uh, today I'm going to be talking about your April Wine Club. We got three wines for you this month, one white and two reds. Uh, I think this is one of the most universally appealing lineups we've ever had, uh, and I'm super excited to chat about it with you. Uh, so first up we have Lightning Rocks Canyon View Chardonnay. Uh, so the two people making this wine are Jordan and Tyler. Um, husband and wife team living in the Okanagan in Summerland. For those of you who are unfamiliar with sort of the layout of the Okanagan, um, it's a super long valley. It's actually the northern tip of the desert that actually runs through Washington. Um, and so on the south side, you have places like uh, Oliver and Soyuz, which are quite a bit warmer. Um, the further north you go, the colder it gets all the way up to um Kelowna and even past Kelowna actually. Uh, these guys are definitely considered in sort of the northern half of the Okanagan, so a lot cooler climate. Um, they're in a town called Summerland, uh, which is just between Penticton and Kelowna. Uh, fantastic place to go visit. That's where a lot of the, the cool young wineries are starting up because it's so expensive in Kelowna. Um, not that it's inexpensive in Summerland, it's just less expensive. Uh, so you have guys like uh, Tyler Harleton, uh, you have Sage Hills, uh, my friend Keenan is working out of there, uh, as well as um, uh, Nomad Cider uh, is actually in that area as well. So definitely go visit those guys if you're, if you're planning on going to visit Lightning Rock. Um, so the first time that I actually met uh, Tyler, at least, um, was a couple years ago. I was traveling through the Okanagan and my friend uh, Sean from Marrow Vermouth was like, hey, you have to go meet these guys. They're making some of the best wine in the Okanagan. Uh, your trip would be a total waste if you didn't actually go see them. And so uh, we decided to drive over the next day. We hung out with Tyler, walked, uh, walked through his vineyard and were totally amazed by the actual property itself. Uh, pretty steep slope, pretty rocky. Um, farmed exactly the way that we want to see things farmed. So with cool cover crops, um, farming organically and definitely towards sort of that biodynamic holistic side of things. Um, then we went and sat on the patio and drank a couple of his wines and I was just completely floored. Um, first up was the Viognier, which I thought was just like absolutely spectacular, super bright and fresh, juicy, aromatic, but without being that sort of like oily, overpowering style that Viognier tends to get. Then we tasted a rosé, which I thought was the standout wine. It was based on um, this particular wine from Tavel that I'm a, an absolute huge fan of. Darker style rosé, um, really intensely flavored, almost like a light red stylistically. Um, absolutely awesome. And then we tasted their Pinot Noir from their vineyard. Uh, and again, equivalently gorgeous, super complex, really layered. Um, and so we decided to start importing them and we asked them what the name of their winery was and they're like, we don't know yet. Uh, <laughs> we were literally tasting out of blank bottles uh, that they had just pulled out of the garage. Um, at this point, they hadn't even fully moved into their actual winery yet. They had actually made the wines at Okanagan Crush Pad, the place where uh, both of them worked previously, uh, mostly on their sparkling wine program. Um, but yeah, they eventually decided on the name Lightning Rock based on the fact that there's this giant boulder in the middle of the vineyard uh, that is split in two and the 
I guess kind of crazy next door neighbor said that uh, it was split because it was struck by lightning or something like that. So they just decided to, to go with lightning rock as an ode to their, their place. Um, the whole idea for them is to really show off Summerland specifically. Uh, there's a lot of variety in the Okanagan from soil types to uh, climates. And so they really wanted to sort of emphasize uh, all the little microclimates that are actually in uh, Summerland. So the vineyard that we're talking about here is another vineyard they own. They actually own three vineyards, all of which are completely tiny. Uh, we're talking about like a couple acres each. Um, and uh, this vineyard's in, as it says, Canyon View. It's like in a canyon, basically, that uh, is about a five-minute drive away from their house um, and their home base property. Um, the guy who they have farming this vineyard for him is... OCD to say the least. I've never seen such an immaculate vineyard before in my entire life. Uh, it is so precisely farmed that you, you'd be hard pressed to actually find even a leaf out of place. Uh, and I think this shows in the actual style. Um, their other two vineyards, so their, their vineyard at their home property is sort of, um, I would say it's like very centered stylistically like it looks a little bit wild but not fully wild definitely sort of the natural style that we really uh enjoy seeing um and then their other vineyard uh saint cat's uh saint catherine's vineyard uh is a complete gong show uh it's the oldest pinot noir vineyard uh in the okanagan planted in the 60s on this super wonky terraced slope um the guy who made it uh, apparently had like multiple tractor accidents like trying to farm this thing because it's a complete I don't know like it's a hodgepodge of different row lengths different pruning methods uh, some of the vines are dead some of them are alive it's completely overgrown in so many different ways uh, it is a nightmare. Um, but that being said, I think that some of the craziest looking vineyards end up yielding some of the best wines. You look at places like Cornas um, in the Rhone Valley, or you look at places like uh, the Douro in Portugal, and some of these really wild vineyards are the ones that are actually making the, the most interesting bottles of wine. And I think that's definitely the case with that as well. Um, so we kind of have the full spectrum going from this particular vineyard, which is Canyon View, um, being sort of the most classic, most pristine, perfectly farmed, um, to their home vineyard, which is, uh, like a beautiful garden, almost, uh, a little more like wildland, really, really pretty. Uh, and then you have St. Cat's, which is just like, uh, <laughs> you know, like walking out into the forest, basically. It's just completely on its own. So stylistically here, um, this is made from Chardonnay. Chardonnay on its own actually doesn't really have a ton of flavor, which is why it's so good at showing terroir. When you remove the variables of um, crazy fruit characteristics, you end up being able to see through uh, to the underlying characteristics, which are the influence of soil, the influence of climate, um, the idea of terroir, so, so somewhereness. Um, for me, this Chardonnay is, again, just like ultimately balanced. It's got the best of everything. It's medium bodied. It's medium to medium plus acidity. Um, definitely medium plus acidity, actually. It's, it's got 
quite a zestiness to it, but it's not like razor blades. It's not like, you know, drinking like Mosul, like dry Mosul Riesling or Chablis in a cold vintage or something like that. We're talking about uh, a Chardonnay that actually has roundness, that has depth, but at the same time, freshness. Uh, the first time I tasted this wine um, was at, I believe it was at Top Drop, which is a, a fantastic little wine festival that happens here uh, in Calgary as well as in, in Vancouver uh, and Victoria as well, I think. Uh, and that was the first time that I tasted it. And I was just like storming around, just being like, this is stupidly good. I am so impressed. Um, anyways, I immediately let him know that even though it was super small production that I needed some of this, uh, especially for the wine club. I was like, there's no way I can't put this in wine club after tasting how insane it is. Um, for me, again, it tastes very much like Burgundy, um, like really good classic Burgundy. Um, unlike basically every wine that's ever been in wine club, 30% of the barrels that this was aged in were actually new barrels, which imparts a lot more flavor than old barrels. Their whole goal is to eventually um, almost exclusively use old barrels. It's just when you're a young winery, you have to buy new barrels. Uh, it's just the way that it is. You can only find so many used barrels uh, and old barrels that are actually maintained properly, I guess. Uh, sometimes you can buy an old barrel and it's infected with Britannomyces or it's not super clean. So these guys wanted to be super safe. Um, they weren't able to get barrels that they, older barrels that they wanted to, so they bought new barrels. Um, ends up imparting uh, a slight sort of like, almost like vanilla wafer kind of quality to it. Um, almost like macadamia nut cookie. Uh, these really sort of like subtle, very elegant, very pretty, um, sort of oak characteristics. Again, oak is not always my favorite, but on Chardonnay, again, I have a guilty pleasure of really loving Chardonnay with at least a little hint of oak. Um, so this wine, I, I think, has some incredible aging potential as well, especially because it's under Stelvin or screw cap. Uh, screw caps are great because they don't let any oxygen in, and if you were to store this in a super dark, cool place for um, again, at least the next five, six years, I think it'll develop really nicely, develop a ton more complexity, not that it's not super complex already. Uh, and as far as actual pairings go, I, I think that this wine is just so nuanced and so intricate that you wouldn't really want to overpower it with any food that's, um, again, too overtly flavorful. So I would just choose like maybe one or two really good cheeses um, I think in the write-up I mentioned camembert, which I, I think makes a lot of sense. Um, something very um, creamy and rich, but that has sort of um, uniform flavor to it so that you can actually let the, the Chardonnay shine through. Uh, and then the other thing that I think that this would go really well with are um, sort of creamy soups. I think that that's, uh, that's kind of a classic uh, pairing as well, whether it be like cream mushroom soup, you know, honestly from a can would be totally fine in this situation, especially given this current circumstances. I, I don't think anybody would, uh, would scoff at, uh, pairing this really wicked bottle of wine with a canned cream of mushroom soup. So, uh, the second wine that we have, um, is actually our first ever repeat. So we were talking about it and, um, the first vintage of Meinklang, uh, Blauburgunder or Pinot Noir, um, that we used in the club uh, almost two years ago now was from the 2015 vintage. Um, 2015 and 2016, 2015, I believe. Um, and stylistically, it was so completely different from the vintage that we have now. 
basically what happened was they ended up having a lot of really wild fermentation characteristics. Um, actually, it was 2016. I'm getting confused here. I apologize. Uh, it was 2016. They ended up getting a lot of wild fermentation characteristics. Um, fermentation, it struggled a little bit. They ended up with a little bit more VA. The wine um, was way more sort of wild. Um, you know, we sometimes describe those wines as being like a little bit furry. Um, they're kind of feral. They're untamed in any way, a little more rustic. And that's a style of wine that I really, really enjoy. But it's really interesting to see that with the exact same winemaking techniques, a year later, you can end up with something that's entirely different. And that's just based on the vintage. They weren't really doing anything different. Uh, it was purely based on the fruit that they actually received that year. So in 2016, there was a lot of um, pressure, uh, as in <laughs> there was hail, there was... Um, uh, frost and this ended up sort of beating up the vines a little bit. Um, they're not entirely sure why it happened, why they had this challenging fermentation. Uh, but in 2017 and 2018, and apparently in 2019 as well, which hasn't been released yet, uh, the fermentation was way cleaner. The wine ended up being way more classic stylistically, almost tasting like a conventional wine, despite being made uh, the exact same way as that sort of more wild style from a from a couple years previous. So Meinklang, for those of you who haven't had their wines before, uh, although I'm sure a lot of you have had them, uh, they're a biodynamic farm in uh, Bergenland in Austria. So Bergenland, about an hour south, hour and 20 minutes south of Vienna, um, located around a lake called Neusiedlersee. And this area is famous for uh, a variety of different soil types. Uh, in this case, we mostly have sandy loam. Uh, so these sort of loose sandy soils, very easy to grow grapes on. Um, vines tend to love this soil. It's easy for them to get their roots into it. There's lots of nutrient availability, but not too much. Uh, it retains just enough water in order for them not to have to irrigate or anything like that. Um, it's a very healthy place to, to grow grapes, basically. Um, when we were talking to uh, a handful of winemakers down there, they always talked about uh, Bergenland being very moderate. It's, it's very in the middle of everything. It's kind of like the, the Goldilocks uh, equation. It's just right for pretty much everything. There's slopes, but they're not too steep. Uh, the soil types are well-draining, but they don't drain too much. They get a little bit of rain, but not too much rain. It, it's kind of perfect in, in every way. And so you end up with these wines that are always very moderate. Uh, they're never super high in acid or super high in alcohol, or um, they're never over the top. They're really just very well made. Um, well, sorry, not very well made, but very, very centered and have the ability to be very well made and very balanced. Um, so this particular grape variety, Pinot Noir, uh, is known as Blauburgunder in Austria. Blauburgunder meaning blue grape from Burgundy. Um, in the last time that we talked about this, I mistakenly said that the German version, Spatburgunder, meant black grape from Burgundy, but it actually means late grape from Burgundy. So there are sort of three grapes that they that they uh, call the Burgunder grape. So Grauburgunder meaning gray grape from Burgundy, Weissburgunder uh, meaning white grape from Burgundy, and Blauburgunder uh, or Spatburgunder, which means uh, either blue or late grape uh, from Burgundy. Basically, the um, white and, and pink grape, so the Pinot Blanc and Pinot Gris or Weissburgunder and Grauburgunder, both ripen a lot earlier. 
so Pinot Noir or Blaubergunder ripening later got called late grape from Burgundy. So uh, Spätburgunder. Um, this grape variety is super susceptible to uh, things like rots and funguses and all those sort of really nasty things because it has super thin skins. Uh, it also doesn't like to be overwatered. It doesn't. Al it also doesn't really like the heat. Uh, it's sort of very fussy. So you notice almost more variation from year to year with Pinot Noir than most other grape varieties. Um, something like Pinot Blanc, for instance, uh, if we're comparing it to its siblings, uh, is going to be fairly consistent year in and year out versus uh, Pinot Noir tends to be, again, drastically different all the time. One of the things that I, I want to point out about this wine is that it's bottled under Nomacork. Uh, Nomacorks are fantastic. Uh, they can't be corked like corks made from cork. Uh, they are made from recycled sugarcane waste. Uh, so they basically take all that, that waste and process it in a way where they're, they're shoving it through an extractor uh, to make a cork shape. And you put that in the end of your bottle. It's totally recyclable, the same way that uh, paper is recyclable. So you can just toss it in with your recycling bin, uh, and they'll shred it up and turn it into newspaper or toilet paper or whatever they happen to do. And uh, again, they can't be corked. They're way better for the environment, and it's just a great thing all around, in my opinion. Um, and so I'm glad that uh, Mind Clang has moved to this for this particular bottling. Uh, as far as flavor profile goes, I really always like their Pinot because it's very um, foresty. It's kind of like this this uh, refreshing, almost like alpine-y quality to it. There's always a lot of sort of sage and wild herbs and beautiful uh, like mountain meadow flowers and things like that. Uh, at the same time as having sort of those classic uh, cherry, you know, raspberry, uh, red apple skin, things like that. Um, so this is a completely classic version of Pinot Noir in, in my opinion. So, uh, hopefully you guys will enjoy it. And the last wine that we're going to talk about this month is Mother Rock Grenache. Uh, this is coming from, uh, Johan Mayer, uh, more commonly known as Stompy, uh, one of our favorite winemakers in Swartland. Uh, Swartland is located in South Africa, just north of Cape Town. Uh, this particular region is quite vast. It would take you a couple hours to drive from end to end of it. Um, part of the region is quite close to the ocean. The other part of the region is, uh, you know, tucked up against mountains, um, while the rest of the region is sort of on these flat expanses, uh, mostly used for, for growing wheat. So it's quite diverse. Um, you see a handful of different soil types here as well. Um, you have shale, you have granite, um, you have a lot of decomposed soils because the soils here are quite old, so they've uh, broken down into varying types of sand. Uh, you have a tiny amount of clay, depending on where you go. Um, so it, it's really quite varied. So depending on where you're growing the grapes, you can end up with all these sort of different microclimates. This particular one is coming from uh, Moundsbury, um, which is sort of more close to the southern end of, uh, of Swartland, so closer to the Cape Town side uh, of Swartland. And uh, this area is quite hot. Uh, a lot of people argue for South Africa not being quite as hot as, uh, as you'd expect because a lot of people associate 
hot climate regions with not making quality wine or not being able to express terroir in the same way that cool climate regions like Champagne and Burgundy and the Mosul, uh, for instance, um, they're not able to express it necessarily the exact same way. So I you know, really like to point out that this is indeed a hot climate region. It's a lot more, uh, it has a lot more in common with places like Spain um, or southern France. And that's why grapes like Grenache, uh, a grape variety that does come from, from Spain and is very common in southern France, uh, why it does so well here. Grenache has an extreme tolerance for heat um, and quite a good tolerance for drought as well. So in places like South Africa that are again quite hot and quite dry, uh, this grape variety actually makes a lot of sense. What I like about Grenache is that you can still get elegance out of it even though it tends to be full in body. Uh, a lot of people, especially over the course of the last sort of two decades or so, have erred on the side of making Grenache into this big behemoth. It can get alcoholic quite quickly, so it's you're not hard pressed to find Grenache at uh, you know 15 plus percent alcohol, uh, and so it's sort of got a bad rap for that for a while. But uh, when you make these lightly extracted, more delicate versions of Grenache, um, they can be really quite pretty, almost Pinot Noir like. And so this is kind of a happy medium between those two styles, where you end up with something that's um, quite powerful physically, uh, but at the same time with a little bit lower alcohol percentages and still showing a lot of nuance um, and a lot of complexity. Uh, as far as actual flavor profile goes for this wine, uh, it's sort of of two minds. It's definitely got all these dark fruit characteristics, blackberry, black cherry, uh, this really awesome floral and wild herb note that I love about Grenache, uh, almost this olivey characteristic, but then also these bright fresh fruits as well, almost like blood orange uh, and red plum. It's got this juiciness to it, even though it has these quite gritty tannins. Um, I would definitely describe the tannins as almost being like black tea. Um, they're quite drying on the palate. Um, the alcohol is perfectly in check on this, uh, sort of falling between that 13 and 14 percent, um, which is just perfect for, for Grenache, in, in my opinion. Uh, I think that it shows, um, I don't know, control, as opposed to just letting the wine get really, really wild. As far as fermentation goes on this wine, um, he actually did uh, a really long maceration period, so actual eight weeks on skins. So normally when you're making red wine, what you do is you collect the grapes uh, and you crush them and you allow the grape juice and the grape skins to macerate during fermentation. So while it's going from being grape juice to being wine, you let it macerate. This is what's extracting a lot of the color, uh, a lot of the flavors, and a lot of the actual preservative qualities from the skins. After fermentation, uh, which usually takes somewhere between, uh, depends on the wine, but somewhere between one week and three weeks is sort of usual for, for uh, red wine maceration. Fermentation usually only takes about a week, a week and a half, maybe two weeks. Um, and so normally you would then press it off. So you would just uh, collect the juice and get rid of the skins. But uh, for Johan, he basically decided to uh, let it continue macerating for an additional uh, five plus weeks, basically. So you're extracting more and more flavors. There's some interesting science that happens when you do this. Um, there's the this 
thing that happens with the chains of tannins. So the tannins, for those of you who don't know, are uh, the molecules that are causing that mouth drying effect in certain red wines. Um, it's a very textural element in the actual wine. Uh, I believe they're polyphenols. So basically what happens is they're, um, they're polymerized. So they, they go from this shape of molecule that we find quite abrasive on our palate to a shape of molecule that is a lot softer. So even though there ends up being the same amount of tannin, uh, the nature of those tannins changes by this long maceration period. So you end up with a wine that's both full in tannin, but at the same time, uh, those tannins feel uh, a lot more palatable. So it's this really interesting process that very few winemakers are actually practicing anymore. Uh, for me, for pairings with this, this was like easily the most inspired pairings uh, for, for our combinations. Uh, I think that this wine just has to go with with classic South African barbecue uh, called a braai. Um, while I was down there, I ate a lot of lamb, admittedly. Uh, I think like lamb rack with this wine would be absolutely amazing, um, but you could basically do anything lamb related. Uh, they have what they call smileys, which are lamb heads uh, cooked over the fire, which are super tender, really, really flavorful. Um, so something like that would be amazing. Uh, and then the other thing is uh, sosadis, um, which are meat skewers. You can have a different a handful of different types of meat for them, um, but often spiced with uh, Cape Malay spices, which are um, a, a lot of people don't realize sort of the Indian influence uh, in, in South Africa. Uh, they make up a very significant portion of the population. And so a lot of those flavors have been brought over, a lot of the curry spices, um, but they sort of have their own rendition based on combining uh, African and Indian uh, spice profiles. So if you can get your hands on uh, you know, a good spice blend like that, definitely use it. Uh, and then the other thing that's really cool is that they'll often use um, fruit as well, um, a handful of different you know, fruits on the actual skewer with the meat. So you're getting sort of this sweet and savory combination, um, sweet, savory, spicy. And I, I think that that goes super well with this wine. Um, again, it's despite being a fuller bodied red wine, I definitely think it's quite flexible from a, from a pairing perspective. Um, we don't get a ton of this wine. We were very lucky that we accidentally ordered the exact right amount for wine club this month. It's very hard when we're making our orders in uh, you know, December, uh, if not earlier than that, you know, November, December, and trying to plan for uh, a wine club that's going to, you know, not be until April. So we've had a lot more people sign up lately than we expected. So luckily, we had ordered just the right amount of wine that everybody gets a bottle and there'll be a couple left on the shelf. Uh, I think all three of these wines uh, offer really great value considering the tiny production uh, and considering the, the quality level that they're actually offering. Um, that's about everything that I have to say about these particular wines. Uh, we're hoping to do uh, a couple more podcasts over the next month just to give you guys a, a little extra something to do. Uh, hopefully on our, our Instagram we will also do some sort of live tasting. So if you end up having one of these bottles left over by the time that we actually announce that, definitely join us for it. Uh, and if you have any questions at all, feel free to send us an email. Uh, my email address is eric, E-R-I-K, at juiceimports.com. We look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thanks. Thanks.